What is it you want, Barry? What do you want? You, you want the moon? Just say the word and I'll throw a lasso around it and pull it down. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, dying times here. Come with me if you want to live. That's it, man. Game over, man. Game over. The Force will be with you. Always. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to 20th Century Geek. I'm your regular host, Scott Weatherly, and we are going into the creepy quarter. That's right, we're into the last quarter of the year. Autumn or fall turning into uh, winter. That's right, we're going to be talking about all kinds of things creepy and ghoulish this uh, this October. It's story time, ladies and gentlemen. We always love story time. And with, the, with Halloween just knocking at the door what better story to have than a ghost story now you might notice actually that i'm on my own for this one uh people are busy and i wasn't able to rustle up a guest but you've got your wonderful friendly neighborhood 20th century geek talking about uh let's say well i would say the master the king of the british ghost story uh montague rhodes james uh, better known as mr james uh writer of uh Ghost Stories, and Provost of Cambridge University uh, back in his day. A true intellectual medievalist and uh, lover of gothic cliches and haunted houses. Uh, the story we're going to be doing today is from his first collection of stories, uh, the uh, Ghost Stories of Antiquity, uh, sorry, of an Antiquary, apologies, Ghost Stories of an Antiquary, uh, which was released in 1904, so it really sort of hit in the start of the century. And we're going to be talking about the mezzotint. Uh, now, the mezzotint. First off, what is a mezzotint? Oh, that's what's worth exploring. Mezzotint is a an engraving or sort of like a sketch of. Um, I suppose I think it's supposed to be like buildings or countryside and that sort of thing. It's uh, in this they call it topography uh, of buildings. You will have seen it if many English people or British people or. Even Europeans will probably have seen these as they travel around. Most pubs, even says in the story, but most pubs will have these things. Often of the building itself, uh, if the building is old enough, um, and so you will have seen a mezzotint. It's a sketch, ink sketch, ink engraving of the building. But what is the story we're going to talk about? Well, the mezzotint, uh, as many of uh, M.R. James's story, is designed to be regaled, to be told. This was how he did his tales, because the idea was that on a Christmas Eve he would regale his friends with a ghost story. Uh, that was sort of the point. And this is no different. That's the point. It's sort of told uh, through a person who's telling the story of a friend of a friend kind of thing. Uh, the story is about a Mr. Denniston, uh, who works for Cambridge University, uh, building out their the museum for the art part, part of the arts. Now, when we say arts, I don't mean sort of like, you know, Van Gogh's and, and that sort of thing. This is much more um, low, <laughs> low level sounds really patronising, but much more mundane um, in the fact he sort of collects topography, maps, uh, and these mezzotint, these mezzotint pictures. Uh, and he comes across one of these. He is sent... Um, a catalogue from a regular dealer who suggests this article. He has the article sent to him. And then, whilst the article is deemed to be uh, mundane, un- unordinary, it has a sort of strangely high price. Uh, but then as people see this mezzotint, this picture of this uh, Victorian building, or Georgian building, um, 
things start to change. Each time that it's viewed, the picture slightly changes. It goes from dusk to dark to darkness. The moon appears. A character appears and creeps across the ground towards it. And eventually sort of breaks into the house and leaves carrying what could only be described uh, as a young child in a bundle. Uh, this The mystery of what this is is made worse by the fact that they cannot initially identify the, the house that is drawn. Uh, there's a partial piece of uh, material on the back with a part name and a location. However, when they do eventually figure it out, uh, Angley Hall, uh, it is determined that there was a tragedy in uh, 1802 and the, uh, the, the, the owner of the house, his son, was stolen away in the night. Uh, most likely in retribution for a poacher that was executed, uh, a, a gentleman named Gordy. We'll get to that shortly. And that's how it's left. Um, this this image um, is you know has been seen. This story has been told through these sort of like snippets of this creature crawling around on the ground, um, and obviously creeps people out. Now it's a fantastic story. I really enjoy it. It's incredibly creepy. Um, in fact, I'm going to read just a small passage from it before we get into the uh, the details of it, into the sort of the descriptions. So, at last, some time past midnight, he was disposed to turn in, and he put out his lamp after lighting his bedroom candle. The picture lay face upwards on the table where the last man who looked at it had put it, and it caught his eye as he turned the lamp down. What he saw made him very nearly drop the candle on the floor, and he declares now that if he had been left in the dark at the moment, he would have had a fit. But, as that did not happen, he was able to put down the light on the table and take a good look at the picture. It was indubitable, rankly impossible, no doubt, but absolutely certain. In the middle of the lawn, in front of the unknown house, there was a figure where no figure had been at five o'clock that afternoon. It was crawling on all fours towards the house, and it was a muffled in a strange black garment with a white cross on the back. And that is the creature that enters the house. So, what I want to talk about is this idea, this wonderful story, um, is this idea about art is the first thing I want to discuss. Um, art and, and, and ghost stories don't really, as far as I'm going to really sort of go massively together. There, there's, um, I have seen, you have the sort of the picture of Dorian Gray, uh, and there are other ideas. But it's usually when there's some sort of um, exuberant or extortionate po- picture, you know, something of grandeur, um, or to be hidden away, as in the picture of Dorian Gray, the one that depicts his el- older, decrepit, evil ruined self rather than the young person but this is this this is the idea of the mezzotint are uh, um <laughs> mundane mundane sketches um of of buildings or, or sort of landscapes they're not to be taken as sort of like you know grand renaissance arts uh, still talented no doubt but they are of a piece and so this idea of the, the supernatural seeping through this thing is is what fascinates me because it's this idea of sort of like it's not there to be there's no legend with it like the the book um, sorry the book the art piece when it comes from the dealer doesn't come um, with a legend you know like you you it comes with a higher price because it's you as you learn it's actually relatively rare uh, the the imprint 
But in most cases, or in many cases, you get this idea of the legend. You know, uh, think of um, in the seventies, or I think it was the the mid to late seventies. There was this legend of this the this pitching this print of this crying child that appeared in loads of houses um but if you were to have this house the house would burn down this was this legend and apparently like, the sun newspaper i believe did a sort of a, uh, an expose to try and get a copy of this picture and so if they could destroy it by fire um and the same thing like you've seen these pictures but this idea of sort of there's always a legend attached to them you know there's some sort of figure or, or a story as to why they are supernatural. There's, there's a, there's, there's, the legend is attached to them. This this um, story that we have here, the Mezzotint, is actually the creation of this legend. Um, it's the almost like the origin story as to why this this picture would become uh, a figure of legend. Because all it is is, is, is this drawing of a house. Uh, five double bayed windows at the top, four at the bottom, a porch went door at the front. Usual kind of architectural... Um, Affrontments on the front, but it's not designed to be flashy. It's not designed to entice you in, but it's still a moment in time. This thing was still taken as a moment, and that's why I find fascinating about this book is, or this story, is this idea of moments, um, and this picture, this window into a moment. We'll get. We'll get I want to get to that something. I want to sort of touch more on the mundane because. This idea of the mundane as well. Like if we talk about, especially if we talk about ghosts, um, this com- this really came about much later uh, in pop culture. This idea of the mundane, the regular, the everyday, becoming a part of horror didn't really happen until um, probably until the seventies. With the like, there's a housing boom, and you get sort of like Amityville Horror, the Poltergeist, um, the Entity, you know, those kinds of films where like these supernatural things start to sort of uh, invade everyday homes the regular sort of thing before that you've got sort of this idea of the gothic this idea of sort of um the ancient or the old world sort of being sort of you know beholden into the old world so a lot of ghost stories even sort of like even the written ones if you take for example um the haunting of hill house by uh, shirley jackson it still has an element of the mundane because that's what the main character is about. This sort of this woman who's trapped in this uh, existence, looking for a way out, um, quite possibly. Um, but they still have to go to this old house. They go to an old house to experience sort of like you know the the energies from the past. So it's an old house with a legend. You know that's the point of this this the haunting of Hill House. Hill House has this legend much like other things would have. So the mundane, so for, for, you know, for this idea of, an, an at least for these academics, uh, an everyday item, I mean, one of the wonderful things in the, the way it's described is, as I said, uh, James describes it as no different to any picture that you would have seen in, in any pub or inn up and down the country. It's not special, it's not irregular, it's, not, uh, you know, it's just mundane. It's something that you could have in your house. And that's the idea, it's the question... Well, if this thing's not special, what, you know, like what else is out there? Like, you know, uh, in the very last sort of um, section of the story, they talk about uh, where it goes. It stays at the museum, but they're they're looking at it to see if it was created with sympathetic ink, uh, which is one step away from psychic paper. Um, but was a consideration at the time. That's um, seriously, this is you know, 
the supernatural was big around the sort of the turn of the century and people had this belief that there were these things that existed um but this idea of the mundane i love this idea that you know just you in your house in your modern home or your regular home in sort of like you know those things that you've bought from the car boot or you're from sort of like you know from anywhere this idea of bringing something mundane into your house that then brings with it um a phantom some sort of like you know this this because you can imagine this story could be someone buying this from a second hand a second hand shop or a car boot sale and bring it into their home put it over the fire and all of a sudden these glimpses of this horror story playing out and they can't do anything about it because that's the point as well this thing i like is the fact that these the story often is with with uh, mr james is these sort of like kind of stuffy academics um, in the case like Deniston, they sort of they, they all live in Cambridge. They live in academia. Uh, they're not regular guys, and so you know these aren't working class. Isn't this is not a working class story? Um, but this idea of they're, they're they're sort of taxed. Their knowledge is taxed. They don't they cannot explain this. They have knowledge of these these art items, but they can't explain why this one is different and what they're seeing. And Deniston is pushed to his limit. Like you know when when other people keep describing. Uh, the alterations to the picture. So when he first gets it, that you know it's sort of um, clear skies. It's sort of it's you know, late afternoon, but it's fine. There's nothing there. It's just a house. Next person that describes it, it seems to be dusk. Cause they say about how the lighting has been done very cleverly to show that sort of like the turning of light. And there's a figure, like just the head of a figure, appearing at the bottom of the um, the picture. And then the next person sees it later in that evening, and. Um, as I described in the in the passage, there's a there's a creature. There's something crawling. It's now dark nighttime, and there's a creature crawling across the lawn. And so you go, okay, well, you know, you know, you never see movement. You know, this is sort of like the weeping angels kind of thing. When you, but the opposite, like you have to observe the change. You don't see the actual change, but you have to observe the next stage of it. Um, and then the next one, actually, that you know the. The next person that sees it describes it as a normal house. There is no figure, but there's an open window. Uh, and then the final reveal is um, one of their sort of servants, which is an odd... It's not odd, it doesn't play well in 2022, but they have like a manservant that comes around and takes their orders for food and things. And he sees it, and what he describes, and what they eventually see, is this death-like figure crawling well striding across the lawn holding this bundle in its arms now they don't see movement right and the light has changed the moon is now out uh, in this final thing it's clearly dark it's clearly nighttime and there's this death-like figure uh, marching across the lawn and that's it because the next time it's sort of seen it's gone the story is over and this thing's back to normal the story has been told but it doesn't give you anything, and that's what the other thing I kind of like in this. Like, you know, it's not like um, it's not like you are given the story doesn't play out like you know, like uh, if, it, if today now you do a video, you get more information. They get the information, but like the story itself is a mystery. If you had no access to anything, like, all you would have seen is this series of events, uh, this sort of horrific creature stealing this child away. Uh, eventually, they do find what it is that's going well they find the house they, they they sort of identify the house um and where it is and in doing so they approach another member of i think it's the bursar uh, of the college and he owns and understands all the properties and things. he's traveled up and down the country and knows that part of the world or knows that part of the country and when he's approached 
about Angley Hall and about this thing. He actually has um, knowledge. You know, it's a little spotty, but he has knowledge of the last sort of uh, arist- aristocratic family that lived in that house um, and what happened to them. And what happened was that uh, the Lord of the Manor um, didn't like poachers on his land and there was a particular guy, a guy called Gordy, that had been sort of, he, he knew was a poacher and but was always, you know, just shy of being caught. Um, never, you know, was never sort of found red-handed. Others were, but Gordy always got away with it. And it really vexed the Lord of the Manor. But eventually, in the early 1800s, um, Gordy was caught poaching and in the scuffle actually shot and killed a man. Um, and in, because of these events, uh, Gordy was executed. He was, he was hung and his family were left to poverty. Soon after, the Lord of the Manor's son is taken in the night, disappeared. And that's the depiction of this thing from the story. Uh, the story that's been told by the mezzotint. Now, what what is, is sort of played out a little bit by uh, this the bursa is this notion that, having looked at this thing, well, you know, well, it could be Gordy himself, the ghost of Gordy. Like, it's not, it's all... Um, hyperbole because you find out also that the lord of the manor was the artist who drew this picture so he's drawn this thing and he's clearly done it in his grief so i like this idea of like you are either getting um (laughs) like you are not getting a factual representation of the events that happened this could either be one of two things in my opinion you are either getting a uh, a representation of a ghost or a, a phantom a specter creeping into the house and stealing the child okay is that what really happened we don't know or what you are getting is um the grief of a father who who lost his son in this without any explanation never found you know just doesn't know what happened to his son and in, in his sort of in some way his grief and his imagination has been put into this drawing the sketch that he created that as that is in turn um presenting this grief presenting this sort of fear this nightmare scenario that this father has created of this creature coming in the night and stealing his child now the likelihood is it isn't gordy the likelihood is it was actually could have been part of one of the poachers um family or the poacher friends taking revenge on the family and, and the child's clearly dead i mean the child's clearly killed that's you know, undisputable. The body's never found, the child is never found. But this creature, this thing crawling across the grass, the white cross on its back, is representative to me of the figure of death. It's not gaudy as a phantom, it is this figure of death um, that was imbued into this picture by this grieving father. Because um, we don't really know, we don't even know if the story of Gordy is completely hundred percent true. Because when the bursa tells it, it's an it's an anecdote for a start, but it's again spotty. He says, "Oh well, he didn't really have um, any particular family. The the line died with Gordy, but so did it with the Lord of the Manor." We don't know this. It's a hundred years before, so it's like, it's not. It's one of those you know um, situations where somebody just happens to know the history. Very unfortunately. But because it's anecdotal, we don't know it's true. We don't know. We don't know how much we can trust the bursar's memory of the situation. He could. He's just sort of um, reeling off information as he sort of sees it. 
but that's why I see this story. That's why I like this story so much because the twofold elements of it is this idea of something being brought into um, the story that has the, this capability, but wants to tell its story. Because the other thing as well is once at the end of the story, once it's held at the museum, one of the things it highlights is that it never happens again. The, the, the picture never changes again. It stays back as its normal sort of self. So this story was told, and remember this was released in 1904, and it says early 1800s, this could be like the 100th anniversary of this event taking place. And the story has to be told. It's passed into, or is it that it's just passed into new hands? And is it, you know, every time it's actually passed into new ownership or new hands, this story is, re- is retold again through these diff- these images, this set of images, this sort of like comic strip, if you will, um, of horror, you know, this this event that happened. We don't know, because it's never sort of, you know, they don't try and experiment on it, they don't do anything on it, it's just sort of like, you know, much like the Ark of the Covenant at the end of Indiana Jones, just put away in a museum, just left. No one sort of wants to do anything about it. Um, but I also like the fact it's not animated. This thing is not animated. It's not like you can sit there and you watch. At no point do they sit there, because they actually do try. They sit and try and watch it change. It never changes. It changes out of sight because it's a static image. That's that's what this art is. It's not an animated image. It's a static image that just through whatever means, through whatever supernatural means, is changing into this next thing, uh, the next static image which is captured. Um, and so you can, you know, so if you were to be, if you were to have someone sit and observe it twenty four seven, it wouldn't change. It can't do it whilst being observed. It needs to be out of sight in order to change for then the story to be observed to trigger the next uh, the next change which I kind of like I do like this idea of this this thing having to be told but this idea of revenge as well going back to the whole story of Gordy this idea of something taking revenge but and that being the nightmare and when, when I think about this and this is a, I know this is a stupid comparison um but I, I can imagine I, I've never had that level of grief. I've never had that sort of um, with a you know lost a child or lost a parent or lost a, someone in that way where you don't know. And I can imagine that's horrific. And you know I could feel for anybody that lost someone without knowing what happened to them. You know you watch all these major sort of um, tragedies around the world, these major events, and it, I can imagine that's what's happened. Like someone just doesn't come home. Anyway. The comparison I can make it to, to being this father figure of the grief, is, and this is a weird comparison to stick with me, but being cheated upon, right? If you've had a partner and they have cheated on you, um, the events between that your that person and whoever they cheated on you with are never more explicit and acrobatic and, you know, debaucherous than they are in your own head. And it can drive you insane. And, and you know that's that's sort of what happens, and I can imagine that's what the grief of this father was like. This thing, his child has just disappeared soon after the having executed the poacher Gordy, and so in his head, that's this this, this these things. He, it also highlights that the father died of grief three years after the, the loss of his son, so it drove him, it drove him to that, like he just gave up. <clears throat> so I can imagine this idea of this father just distraught and broken. Doing this, this, this drawing of this house, knowing that his son was taken from it, um, and you know, again, that imagination, that 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 
panic and that um, sorrow and anger and everything just being imbued into this picture to tell this story. And it's more of a story of a father's grief than of a, a revenge being taken. But I kind of like that, and I find that fascinating. Uh, but like I say, not you know, not to be taken again. Um, so that's 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 where I'm <laughs> running a little short on this one. But that's where I see it as. One of the things I would highlight as well, and this is an M.R. James thing, slightly as, as a side, but this is more of an M.R. James thing than to do with the story. But this idea of, uh, of early 20th century class... Um, there are two characters really in the, in, the, in this that w- represent, I want to say working class, but lower class. So you have all the academics that, ex- that work and exist in the uh, Cambridge University. They are all of a type. They're all sort of like, you know, quite sort of, they, they all seem to talk about golf an awful lot or cricket or, you know, their life is, is this sort of academia. Uh, working for the university and having sort of someone come and take their food orders, they go to hall where they have meals and blah blah blah. It sounds bloody amazing. <clears throat> and then you have this idea of the Lord of the Manor, and then you have these two other figures that represent the working class and their sort of position in the world. The first one being, before you know anything about Gordy, um, and and you know this this being an old family, you meet. Um, this servant of the university, and he's the first person to have seen the striding figure coming out of the house. Um, And one of the things that's fascinating is, um, again, why I feel this thing story is about the grief of a father, is because uh, this servant person, when they asked for his opinion, and first off he says, oh, I wouldn't wouldn't put my opinion against yours, Lord. Like, you know, master, you're the the experts, kind of thing. but the other thing he says, he says, well, I wouldn't put it up where my daughter could see it. Because we've already, she's already had like a scare from something else. I and mean, we were up with her for night, you know, for several nights. She's quite easily scared. And that figure is horrifying uh, that that's stolen the child. And so instantly you sort of have this, this figure, this working class figure. Because all the academics don't have, there's no mention of wives or children. Or they're, they're very much like these bachelor academics. And then you have this working class person that works for them, but has a family. Like he's got a daughter, he's got clearly got a wife, he's got a home that he wants to go back to, um, and so you get this representation of a protective father. Then you get the story of Gordy, as this guy who's the poacher, sort of lives on the land of the Lord of the Manor, this Angley Hall, and again you get this idea, and they said they describe him as being one of these sort of. Um, one of the oldest families living on that land may have even been a descendant of one of the original lords of the manor. So there's this bitterness, this thing of the working class. So you get this idea of both class um, bridges, but class divides. So there's definitely this sort of between the academics and this servant, and then the lord of the manor and this gaudy, the poacher, this gulf of uh, representation and lifestyle. You know, the, the opulence of being the lord of the manor, but also this idea of being taken care of and just having to focus on this kind of sort of uh, kind of stuffy but sort of academic, academic world compared to being a working person and, you know, taking uh, orders and so on and so forth. Or being a poacher in order to sort of get food for your family and being punished for it. So I think they, they, they act in both ways, really. This servant person acts as a representation, almost of the lord of the manor, this idea of keeping their child away from this picture because it's because of the, the this hideous figure but 
a protective father, a broken father. And then this working class person again, who was sort of like, you know, it, it accidentally, we should say, killed someone and is executed incredibly quickly. So this the way that the poor are treated, uh, or at least the lower classes are treated, is a fascinating thing. It comes up again throughout James's work. Um, and if anything, I think, you know, there must be a study somewhere. I'm sure there's an essay somewhere that looks at James's work and sort of this the class divide, the class representation across uh, many of his stories um, would be fascinating. But yeah, I mean, to recap, really, I think you know, the mesitant is is easily one of my favourite uh, of James's stories. Uh, I highly recommend it. I mean, I've gone to quite a bit of detail, so I should have said before you listen to this, should have read the stories. Readily available all over the internet. Uh, I think it's out of uh, copyright, so it's available in many, many places. Um, but yeah, what I want to know is, like I say, what are your thoughts? You know, I've talked about all these different things about the mundane, the, the, the mundane art, through to the representations of things caught a moment in time, the grief of a father, uh, working class divide, all those kinds of things. Let me know what your thoughts are. Have you read The Mesitant? Have you read any M.R. James? A lot of people who come back actually already have suggested I would be doing this. And the two that come up are, um, well, there's three. And they're the usual sort of two of them, are the usual. Uh, a warning to the curious uh, and uh, a view from a hill. A view from the hill, yeah. Um, have both come up a couple of times. A view from a hill is excellent. I'll read That's another good one to me. Um and so if you do enjoy the idea of this, go check out The Mesitid. And I will actually, I'm just opening up my wonderful collection here. But there's a, there's a couple of others I'd like to re uh, call out that I think people should read. Canon Alberic's scrapbook has one of my favourite twist endings. It's about a priest who's sort of uh, looking to buy, a, he goes to buy a scrapbook from a church and may or may not come across a demon. Um, the Ash Tree is the story of a witch. Uh, across generations uh, number 13 is about a room that disappears at night or appears at night appears at night but disappears in the day um, and there's several there's casting, the casting of the runes oh whistle I'll come to you my lad um, I'll try to find one of those uh, the haunted doll's house is another one I kind of like uh, a view from a hill as I said there's a warning to the curious and so I, I do recommend ch checking out M.R. James. This this time of year, that the, they are sort of that post-Victorian sort of early 20th century writings. Um, but they're not unreadable. They're not sort of really, you know, dusty, but they are fantastic. But let me know, do you like M.R. James? Um, and if so, what are your favourite stories? And what do you think of my representation or my interpretation of the mezzotint? I'd be fascinated to know. Anyway, ladies and gentlemen, that has been story time. For the final quarter of 2022, we are entering autumn and fall, as I say. Time to grab those blankets, snuggle up warm, and uh, let's enjoy some Halloween. The next episode is Then and Again. And we are keeping with um, the Haunted House theme. I put it out a poll. I asked many people what they thought, which ones we wanted. And we are going to be doing uh, The House on Haunted Hill. The original 1959 uh, Vincent Price Thriller Chiller, which I love that film, and then the remake from 1999 with Jeffrey Rush. So we'll be talking about those on the next episode. But if you really enjoy what we do, uh, please leave a review. I, I appreciate all the reviews. I actually like reading them all as well. All the feedback, anything you want to say, uh, five stars is always appreciated. Gets us up the, the ranking. 
Uh, but any feedback is greatly appreciated. But if you really like what we do, please check out our Patreon. Uh, we have a number of things on there. Uh, myself and Julian Darius, uh, co-host of Stories Out of Time and Space, our sister podcast, uh, do a weekly uh, Twilight Zone podcast. Just 15 to 20 minutes or per episode. We've worked with it. We've literally just started season three. and uh, So you've got like two full seasons um, of Twilight Zone stuff on there. Now, we have just started to release that interweekly on Stories Out of Time and Space, but you know it will never catch up. There will always be a glut more stuff on Patreon, so go check that out. I do a 30-minute thoughts, which is very similar to this, about a number of different things, and I also bring on special creators um, to talk about different things. I've had Peter Atkins, writer of the Hellraiser series and Wishmaster. I've had Kieran Gillen talk about Once and Future. Uh, I've had a number of people, so please go check that out. There's a link down below. But for now, I have to say, Happy Halloween, enjoy the spooky season, and we shall talk again soon. Mm-hmm.